on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, this is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week we induct another seminal composer into the OBS Hall of Fame. Hint, think Susanna with an H. Plus, two-minute drill. I mean, who can afford to study opera anyway? According to Hollywood, it's wealthy white women, and they're not wrong. If you're watching on TDO, you're going to wonder why I quit my uh, Monday night poker game here in the den to record a (laughs) podcast. And you can just subscribe to that podcast on Stitcher or even just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. Sports in the fall is finally happening. I'm thrilled. Oliver, how do you feel? I feel very American today. Uh, We have a very American subject and we have very American panelists as always. Go America. Weston Williams, you might be the most hirsute member of the OBS team. Hirsute? Did you say hirsute? Hirsute, baby. We don't know what he looks like underneath that shirt. My suit. (laughs) We. Dreadful. Uh, Ashley Hardgrave, I I loved texting you over the weekend with one word. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, and then I wrote, it's not great. No, it was good. Um, in in the weekly Arkansas Razorback update that nobody asked for uh, and nobody cares about, uh, it, was a, it was a rough weekend for my Razorbacks. Um, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, as my grandma used to say. Um, they played a top two, like literally the number two team in the country at home. Their Cinderella end had to had to come at some point, and honestly, they needed a little bit of pressure on the road. But still, losing thirty something to nothing is never good. But the rest of the <laughs> schedule is a little bit leaner, except when we play my friend Weston's uh, Alabama. So roll time. Oh yes, we're, that we're is gonna we're gonna hype that on the OBS. It was indeed an <laughs> ugly loss. It was almost as ugly as tailgating before the Bears-Lions game on Sunday. A friend of mine took me. I've been to Bears games before, but I've never been tailgating. Oh, my Lord, was it sloppy out there. Wow. Perhaps I'll put a picture or two on the website. Uh, did the Bears win? I, don't, I have no idea. The Bears did win. Uh, so while you were tailgating at the Bears-Lions game, I was at the other Detroit-Chicago game that was happening, which was the uh, the Tigers-White Sox, which mm-hmm. was the very last game of the regular season. Uh, yeah. Speaking of sloppy fangoers, learn Yikes. a lot. Let us talk. Some- so wait, wait a second, because I, I don't watch football yet. I'll watch the Super Bowl, but I won't watch anything before. Um, <laughs> wasn't there something about like we have a quarterback and he like was put out for the first time and he did badly, and then uh, they're gonna move to Arlington Heights? Like I felt like there's a bunch of Bears news this week, and there just- was there there was a lot of news. Uh, we've you know as I've mentioned previously in some social media for OBS, uh, we we have kind of a problem where. We're putting up a production of Barber, and we have three dudes that we've hired to sing Figaro, and none of them can get all the way through the key aria (laughs) of the production. (laughs) And so... I get it. I understand. I yeah no I put it in terms you can understand all so we have this this guy Justin Fields he start you know people have been really excited about him he's this phenom from Ohio State but is uh, he handsome 
He's terribly handsome. Yeah, okay. You will be all yeah. in. Trust okay. me. Yeah. He, for you and me, he checks a lot of boxes. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, he's so everybody was kind of hanging their hat on him as this big hope. And it hasn't matriculated in the way that, that we had hoped. So like our quarterback that we had, not so great. Our backup quarterback, basically non-existent. Our new young upstart that we really thought was going to be like the savior of the team, also not matriculating in the way that we would have hoped. And on top of all of this is the fact that Soldier Field uh, and the Chicago Bears, they're, they're not coming to an understanding. Basically, the Bears want a bigger stadium. And the, the, the area that is Soldier Field cannot expand any larger. And there's no other place within the city of Chicago that can basically hold them. I don't know if you guys know this, but Chicago actually cannot host a Super Bowl because we do not have the seating capacity required for an actual hmm. stadium to have a Super Bowl. I did Bowl. not know that. Yes. That and dreadful weather in the first week of February. Also true. Also that. But they've had it in New York. It's a thing. Um, so there's been all of this talk of them going out to Arlington Heights where there is this... Northwestern suburb of Chicago for those who Correct. Know. Which is this, yeah, suburban Chicago. This now dormant racetrack is just sitting there. So there's been this push me, pull you, will they, won't they with the Bears and the city of Chicago and the mayor of the city of Chicago and everybody's trying to keep everybody happy but news broke at the end of last week that the Bears have entered a purchase deal with this suburban venue if you want my hot take it's this they're gonna do a year out at Arlington while architects come together to refashion and dig down into the earth of soldier field because the only direction they can go is down. They're going to pull a university of Michigan and it's going to look small from the outside. They're going to dig down into the earth and then they're going to make the stadium bigger by going down instead of up. We're going to get to opera architecture actually too. Let's talk. Some. Architecture day on opera box score. We did it. And now ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. On September 30, composer Carlisle Floyd died at age 95 in Florida. His most well-known opera, Susanna, is routinely in the top 10 most performed Susanna. operas Susanna. by American composers. That's what the H does. But there's a longer list of works by Floyd that they're looking at and listening to as we induct Carlisle Floyd into the hallowed halls of the OBS H-O-F. Weston, give us that intro on Floyd Carlisle, or should I say Carlisle Floyd, and why he's important. Well, uh, he's really one of those operas, uh, opera composers that I feel like when a lot of people hear his name, they really only know Susanna, which is a real shame because I would make the, I think, very strong argument that Carlisle Floyd is the incarnation of American opera. In every way, because um, if you think about the history of American opera, American opera took a little while to get off the ground. Right. Um, so obviously, America as a country did not really exist until the late 1700s. So starting off a little bit slow there. Also, as a colonial power, it was coming from, you know, the English, which also was not a great opera power um, compared to much of Europe, arguably. Um, there was a bit of a gap between Handel and Benjamin Britten. Um and, and Gilbert so, and Sullivan, hello. Just a little. I... <laughs> God. Yeah, Cedar I rest Quist my case. Cedar coming in. Cedar Quist coming in with a GNS always. <laughs> Death, taxes, and Cedar Quist mentioned in GNS. <laughs> 
So in America, you have really the ingredients for like, you know, you really want America to have this big national classical music operatic style once you hit the 1800s, because every every country that's cool is doing it. Uh, Russia starts producing nationalistic operas that are really unique based in Russian sounds. Um, uh, All the Eastern uh, European countries start doing this. French and German opera starts really like square off. And it it, it becomes very obvious very quickly. Even if you don't know the language, you hear a couple phrases of music, and you know exactly where it comes from. Not so much in the U.S., the U.S. did not have the same funding as Western Europe for a lot of music, and so once you get to the early 20th century, the most American sound you have is a lot of American composers imitating Dvorak's New World Symphony, uh, which, you know, what is a good symphony and based in really genuinely American things, especially, you know, spirituals and things like that, um, but it, it really is kind of an imitation. And then you have, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, some experimentation with, like, sort of the Ives school of, like, hypermodernism, which is not very pleasant to listen to unless you're me. Uh, And uh, you have, it's not very conducive to opera. So you go all the way until the 1950s. And here comes Carlisle Floyd and a few others around the same time. Carlisle Floyd is kind of caught in the middle of an interesting period of compositional history, right? In the middle of the 20th century, you have like the hyper avant-garde, high art types sort of dominating everything. You got your Pierre Boulez's and your um, your second Viennese school's grandchildren, you know, and everyone is trying to find the newest, hardest sound to listen to. And Americans don't really respond well to that as an audience. What Americans are going to are musicals, you know, Um and uh, so, but everyone in the high art world who does opera is like, uh, those are just musicals. Those are low art. Those don't count. What Carlisle Floyd does differently is that he does not make the distinction between high and low art. Uh, I read an interesting article in the, uh, one of his obituaries um, talking about how he listened to quite a lot of like German music, very advanced, very experimental stuff, stuff as well as like, you know, Puccini and stuff. But he was he never felt tempted to compose in those styles. He wanted to use what Americans regionally uh, found interesting in music, tonal things, uh, folk music melodies, and bring those to the forefront in a way that wasn't creating something from nothing. Um, and he I was think, the real deal as a Southerner, right? Absolutely. Like, he was born in uh, South Carolina, I believe, um, and he uh, he lived in Tennessee for a while, Florida. He hopped over to Texas. Um um, but he has this really southern uh, flavor to his music and his librettos. Uh, even I think even a lot of his librettos that he wrote that don't take place in the South um, still have a very uh, southern sensibility to them, uh, which I really appreciate because, you know, as a southerner uh, myself, born and raised in Alabama, roll tight. Uh, <laughs> I, I really find it intriguing when that when those kinds of sounds, which you don't ordinarily associate with high opera, uh, come through in the music. Let's take a, let's take a look at, at you know Susanna, the best known Floyd opera. Well, before we do, let's actually take a little musical pause right now. Yeah. And for those of you who are watching the Dallas Opera Network, so sorry, but uh, we are going to sample a little bit of the studio recording uh, conducted by. Kent Nagano. Here is Cheryl Studer singing The Trees on the Mountains. The cars 
so while we've just heard something about Susanna, of course, that is obviously like the most famous in, in his canon, but you hear and you pick up on uh, dramatic rumblings of things that are going to go all the way through his operatic career, all the way back with his very first opera in 1949, which was a little piece that no one hears ever uh, called Slow Dusk. Uh, but it hits all of those same things, you know, orchestrally and, and tonally, it sounds very much like the through line of all of his compositions, his most famous mm -hmm. operas, his less famous monodramas. Uh, it hits on all of those things, you know, the sand hills of the Carolinas, the American South, and also the themes of those, those areas, uh, you know, abject poverty, religious fanaticism. These are things that are going to follow his librettos, most of which he wrote himself all the way through his career. There's a fun little trick that some sopranos do there. The one thing that you will ever hear from his first opera, Slow Dusk, is this piece called uh, Look at Your Hands, Micah. And it's basically, uh, ain't it a pretty night from Susanna but in two and a half minutes uh, and so if you can <laughs> sing that in an audition it lets them know it winks and nods that you can sing Susanna without actually having to go through the nightmare of giving your accompanist that's, that's an OBS hack night. everybody for OBS hack that's for you I have a handwritten copy of the score email me for details uh, but again all of these things the, the, the tonality that Weston speaks of the, you know, abject Southern themes, again, as a fellow Southerner, originally from Arkansas, go hogs. Uh, it's, it's really amazing to see these things that we don't necessarily associate with high art and elitism. Because, again, so many of his storylines include poverty or people that, you know, sort of straddle that, mm -hmm. you know, that income line. The religious fanaticism that we know has a stronghold in places in the American South. Uh, but it brings us to the magical, wonderful, beautiful, rip your heart out and hand it back to you and you enjoy it piece that is Susanna. Uh, I know, you know, any soprano out there can tell you about uh, the the magic of being able to sing these arias. It is, they're, they're so challenging, but they're so they're so comfortable. Uh, it's, it's like a, it's like a hug. Like he's, I can't totally explain it, but in looking at the score, he challenges you, but he also feels like he's looking out for you kind of all at the same time. Uh, and it's very interesting, you know, cause he, he studies as a pianist and it's so great to see somebody that can be that sensitive in writing for the voice when that wasn't kind of where they started. Uh, you know, Trees on the Mountain is certainly my personal favorite. It's the Aki Fuels of American Opera. It exposes <laughs> that soprano. It is, you know, you you have very little to go, and it's really all you in terms of the performance. But then we get into the magic and the majesty of something like Ain't It a Pretty Night, which is one of the other really big arias from it that's absolutely incredible. Oliver, I know you love this piece as much so as I do. just sidebar on what you've been saying uh, and what Weston's been saying, and just to bring it to like the singer perspective, um, if you are a singer trained in American conservatory or a voice program in America, uh, it's somehow that the opera Susanna and the, the arias that uh, sopranos sing from this opera are the first time, I think, that the American soprano feels like they really understand the rhetoric of the music. Mm. And I really absolutely agree. And really dig into the language. And yeah. it makes me think like, oh, God, how many times did we sing stuff in German or stuff in Italian? And like the Italian audiences, the German audiences, like, you don't know what you're even singing about, do you? You know, yeah. this is a, these, yeah, these are arias that you if you hear somebody who doesn't speak English as their native language trying to sing, you're like, hmm, 
Yeah, you know. (laughs) Well, it's very much like all about the primacy of text, right? Uh, When I was uh, sort of thinking about uh, Carlisle Floyd after his, um, after he died last week, I was I was thinking of like trying to figure out like how I would describe him, and uh, of course, in terms of like what he actually sounds like, he sounds nothing like Monte Verdi. But that primacy of text and bringing forward. Um, the meaning in the text, especially since he wrote his own librettos, um, is very much a key proponent of what makes him so special. He's not trying to like go from like this big advanced musical idea into enforcing it into a structure where it doesn't belong. He's coming from the text and letting the music and, express the text for. And there's still modernism in Floyd's writing. Oh sure, but of the melodies are so singable, and you know the audience can really hear the text, yeah. uh, which just makes it a very enjoyable experience for both the performers and the audience. And uh, Ashley's about to jump in. Go ahead. <laughs> I am going to jump in here. I'm going to bring another. You talked about the primacy of the text. I'm going to talk about another P word, and that's prosody. Uh, one of the things that I really love about the way that he yes, the way that he writes is that, uh, you know, you look at something like Ain't It a Pretty Night, it is sung the way it's spoken in a genuine version of an Appalachian mm. or a Southern accent. Yeah. So the 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 phrase, you know, the the notes that are longer is exactly where you would draw that out with a with a true Southern drawl. Uh, they the pattern, the patter, it all, you know, the stars are or the sky is dark and velvet like. You know, the stress is on dark and velvet like, which is exactly how you know my you know. And Brenda would say it. So it's it's so <laughs> smart. And it just adds to this nativism that he absolutely has when he writes about these sorts of things. And conversely, when you hear folks, you know, fake those southern accents and they <laughs> drive you around the So I mean, but it can be overdone. And Ash and I were talking about this before we started recording. It's like in conservatory, you hear these people really leaning into <laughs> it's you know, and I think it's very much, you know, you mentioned before, like if we're singing in another, you know, a foreign language that isn't our native one, people can tell. Mm. When you're singing Susanna and you're trying to fake a southern accent, we can tell. And it is rough. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, I, I mean, I, Weston, I remember when I went to college, uh I, I there I discovered there was a whole genre of movies and entertainment. Um, that all of my northern friends knew and loved. And I'm like, well, I haven't never heard of this. And then I would watch them and I'd be like, oh, because it's a bunch of Yankees failing to do a southern accent properly. We just don't watch that stuff. We, yeah, we try to avoid the lack of authenticity as much as possible. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's one of those things like I... Uh, not everything about the South is a Tennessee Williams play. I don't have to put my mm. hand on a forehead and lay back on a chaise lounge for every single scene. Um, well, you do, but you don't have to. It's yeah, you know, I, it's fun. <laughs> That's what I, I'll do so, it here in just a second. Just a little bit more of uh, personal anecdote, and then I'll pass it back to Weston to continue talking about other operas besides Susanna. But um, I studied Little Bat uh, in college because Amazing. that's what they did with me. Back in college, they, they thought I was a comp Mario tenor. I clearly was not. <laughs> but anyway, I really got to learn this score very intimately. And so did, I have to say, Matt Cummings. I actually saw Matt Cummings sing the role of Little Bat. It's the first time I ever heard him sing, and it was Aww. fantastic. But um, I studied this role with a uh, concert pianist here in Chicago who now directs a music theater. His name is Jeremy Ramey. Yeah, and, Jeremy uh, he, Ramey. And oh, he yeah. knows this know score so well. Mm-hmm. And he brought me into the studio, into practice room, and basically played through the entire score for me and showed me all of the leitmotifs and showed me how 
melodic material from trees in the mountain shows up in like very dramatic moments and um it's just actually a really well crafted score um and uh, i just remember being in college and like just really hearing music and when somebody is passionate this jeremy's from tennessee when somebody's mm-hmm. like from the south yeah. and they really relate yeah. to something and you hear them feeling like they own the music that is that's what Susanna does for some people, you know, mm-hmm. and I wish that we had more music like that it makes me think of, you know, fire shut up in my bones. There's like a new generation of, you know, young audience members, young students, singers who are going to be exposed to that opera are going to mm-hmm. really hear mm-hmm. themselves in that music. And it also makes me think just to bring it back to history that, you know, we could have had operas like Trimonisha being the American opera. Of course, those people, those operas were erased and we never know like what, you know, what type of American sound we could have had much earlier, but give it to Carlisle Floyd. Sure. You know, cause it's, it's a really great show. Carlisle Floyd. Would, One more um, thing I want to add. I'm so sorry. I just thought of this and I think it's really poignant and pertinent to add to this is that, you know, there is, again, Weston can back me up on this for sure. When, when you identify with, the American South, and it is a very specific region and culture. Um, there's specific. a there's a combination of pride and shame, uh, mm-hmm. and you have to reconcile both to really like you know make peace with your identity. And I think especially for for folks on the outside looking in, this this projection of the South that comes through in all of Floyd's dramas, I think a lot of us have a tendency to to really be focusing on the negative uh you know the 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 not so great parts of poverty the not so great parts of the religious fanaticism the 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 embarrassment of the lack of education or or whatever the thing that i appreciate about floyd's dramas is he's never exploitative with it he tells the story but he doesn't do it in a way that is mocking or shameful he he tells it exactly like it is and and there is you know he doesn't overly inflate it so it feels prideful he doesn't exploit it so that the south right. is embarrassed by him he he yeah. rode that line very very well in his dramas and it's you know what better time than right now to talk about that he would also adapt wuthering heights and of mice and men from yeah. their no- novels into operas but also weston to wrap it up one opera that we haven't talked about which is really tough to listen to <laughs> not because it's bad. Uh, <laughs> I should say that right out of the gate. But this is a problem with a lot of Carlisle Floyd uh, operas and works in general. I think because of what Ashley was talking about with the, this this really spe- specificity of like being able to like walk the line of not talking down to local audiences, not letting them like you know get, get away with you know pumping themselves up with pride either, um, and and, uh, and the, the whole fact that Carla Floyd is so uninterested uh, in like legacy or like leaving things behind. He just wants to like really bring out the stories he wants to tell. Um, and, and I wanted to talk a little bit about Cold Sassy Tree, which is maybe not the first or even fifth opera you would think about with Carlisle Floyd. But I have a very personal connection to it because um, uh, it's an opera that came out in 2000. I don't remember what year I saw it, but it was pretty close to 2000 uh, because it was the uh, first opera that I saw by uh, what was at that point a living composer. Um, and uh, it was also, I believe, uh, the first opera I saw in English. Um, which was, I mean, you have to imagine, like, I'm, you know, I, I, I went 
to operas pretty young. I had a pretty good sense of what Verdi sounded like. I heard a lot of Gounod, you know. You're a, uh, a young 10-year-old, six-foot-tall little boy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I already couldn't fit into the lyric opera seats. Um, um, but uh, but I never heard uh, not just an opera in English, but an opera literally written in a dialect that I could hear around me. Um and uh, it's a, it's a comedy. The opera, uh, the opera is mostly a comedy, but there's some really like deep emotional moments, really uh, that really hit you, hit me in a way that hadn't really happened before. Um, because I I think uh, when you grow up listening to a lot of 19th century European operas, uh, you can really find a lot in like the musicality and the beauty of the score. But one thing that I had trouble finding was relatability, you know, and. Uh, and I think the reason that Carlo Floyd is so good at that is because he wrote for local audiences. The, uh, all of his operas seem like perfect for a regional opera company. The forces are not huge. They're, there's not, they're not demanding a, a huge amount of like theatrics, you know, um, for the most part. Um, and it's really meant to be seen in these like local spaces. And as a result, there's not that many recordings. I mean, there is a recording of Cold Sassy Tree somewhere, but let me tell you, it's not on the internet. I looked for it today. I couldn't find it. Um, but I did want to play a little bit of it because um, uh, I wanted to give audiences a taste of maybe what I felt, even if it's just this one sort of like low quality clip I could find on YouTube. Um, but uh, just to give you a little background, Cold Sassy Tree takes place in a small Georgia town in the early 1900s. And it's essentially about um, an older man who marries a younger woman out of convenience. It's pretty funny. The town is scandalized, as they would be in 1906 in a southern town. Um, and, but over the course of the show, they start to genuinely fall in love with each other. And um, what became what started off as just a complete literal marriage of convenience uh, really becomes something deeper and personal. And you, even though it's a, mostly a comedy, you start finding these, you know, dark things about their, about the past of Love Simpson, who's the younger woman who gets married to this older man. Um, and she ends up having to, you know, find the vulnerability to be open and bear her soul in a very real way. And I just want to listen to just a little clip of uh, an aria where she does that. This is sung by Patricia Reset in a San Diego opera production, I believe from 2001. Again, it's hard to tell because this opera is barely on the internet. Um, but she is singing about how she was raised uh, in, uh, she's basically raised in rented rooms and never knew a home of her own. And uh, I believe the, the name of the aria is Rented Room. That's all I've ever known. And there's something so real and unpretentious about this and so beautiful. And I hope you'll connect with it the same way I did.
little bit of sports talk before we get into the drill. We'll kick it off again with Oliver Camacho. So today uh, it was announced that Carl Nassib has a boyfriend, and he is the first active NFL player to come out publicly, and he revealed that he is hooking up. Ooh, it's great. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Who does he play like for? A, uh, Say what? Oh, the Raiders? Is that Okay. Vegas. Oh, Vegas Raider? Okay. The, the Vegas Raiders, yeah. I mean, okay. if you're going to be gay, you might as well be gay in Vegas, you know? <laughs> Michigan <laughs> football, <laughs> making it happen, 5-0, and go blue. Ashley, what's this early bad call that you have on tap? an early bad call for the national broadcasting company known as NBC. Uh, (laughs) So this weekend, the Patriots and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers played each other. So Tom Brady's old team played Tom Brady's new team. (laughs) And NBC really wanted to hype the drama of this match. So what they used in their promos was Adele's hello from the other side. (laughs) So it starts with hello. It's me. And then there's like a picture of Bilicek. And then there's a picture of Brady. The emotional manipulation that NBC put us through to hype up a damn football game. Which, by the way, how dare you force me to pick a side? It's reverse Sophie's choice. I can't stand either of those two. <laughs> Who won? Who won? The Bucks, Because Brady can't lose at life, apparently. But anyway. I, I was waiting for the, the opera sound clip that was going to accompany the uh, emotional manipulation there. I can think of a number of other arias that would have (laughs) been a better choice. I mean, or Uh, Psyche Lenore already sounds like a better. Yeah, yeah. The two-minute drill, it happens every week, and it's happening right now. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Brady Land this week. <laughs> the family of Jesse Norman is suing a London hospital for malpractice. Norman's brother claims that her paralysis was a result of surgery in 2015 to cure a long-standing back problem, and that negligence by two physicians left her unable to move the lower half of her body. Doctors are denying all claims. Another green card for Hamburg. The Hamburg State Opera says it will drop the requirement for staff and audiences to wear masks, well, a month from now anyway. It will also abandon distanced seating. However, all staff and audience members will have to show proof of vaccination. Falling for Figaro, a movie starring AbFab's Joanna Lumley as a retired Mad Diva come voice teacher, focuses on the story of an American living in London who dreams of being an opera singer. She gives herself one year to train with the goal of winning the National Singer of Renown contest. In order to prepare, she has to give up her job as a trust fund manager at an investment firm and her life driving a luxury car and owning her own beautiful home in London. So much fantasy. Falling for Figaro is in limited theaters and available for streaming now. <laughs> Chicago-born artist Rasheed Johnson's mosaics are now on view in the Metropolitan Opera's grand tier and dress circle levels. Quote, my work has always had concerns around race, struggle, grief, and grievance, but also joy and excitement around the tradition and opportunities of blackness, Johnson said to the New York Times. The work will be on display as part of the Met's long-running visual arts initiative gallery met through the 21-22 season. New Opera House Alert. 
Norway and US-based architecture firm Snoheta has revealed its design for a new cultural hub in Dusseldorf that includes two sloping towers and an enlarged auditorium for opera performances. The house itself includes glass walls, organic curved wood in the foyer, and a roof garden. Ooh. The design is currently undergoing an approval process by Dusseldorf City Planning Authority, and you can check out the images at arcdaily.com, A-R-C-H. I think that's Snoheta, that's the name of the firm. In trade news, Calgary Opera has announced that Jonathan Brandani will become its new artistic director. Brandani, or Brandani, will come to Calgary from his associate conductor position at Minnesota Opera. I think it's Brandani. Portland Brandani. Opera has announced that bass baritone Damien Getter is their new interim music director. Getter also holds the position of artistic advisor for the social justice-focused Resonance Ensemble. Say that five times fast. And here at our home away from home, Dallas Opera has named Walker Beard as director of operations. He'll take over for Drew Field, who is the company's technical director and worked with Dallas for three decades. Anne Murray, no, not that Anne Murray, has been appointed International Chair of Singing at Royal Northern College of Music. The Irish Mezzo begins her appointment this month, but no word on when she'll return to the adult contemporary pop charts with Could I Have This Dance, the remix. Exit stage right. One of the most empathetic trainers and judges of operatic voice, pianist Maya Im, music director at Houston Grand Opera Studio, professor of opera at Rice University and former head of music staff at LA Opera, has died at the age of 47. LA Opera said, quote, her light shined brightly beyond the music department, charming every one of us with her warmth, knowledge, and enthusiasm for and encouragement of her fellow artists. She will be remembered not only for her contributions to our collective artistry, but for her enthralling humanity, her friendly greetings, bright smile, and the delicious baked goods she'd share just because. American soprano Karen Armstrong has died at the age of 79. Armstrong made her debut at the San Fran Opera in 1965 and shortly thereafter at the Met. The soprano made her house debut at the Deutsche Oper in 1977, where she would go on to give over 400 performances in 24 different roles. She made her last appearance in 2016 as Lorena in Eugene Onyekin. Quote, Karen Armstrong has shaped the Deutsche Oper Berlin like few female singers for almost four decades. That's from the house in an obituary. And on this day, October 4th, in 1746, it was the first performance of Jean-Marie Leclerc's Scylla et Glaucus in Paris, a plot you should know if you read the book Circe by Madeline Miller. It's very good. In 1803, <laughs> it was the first performance of Luigi Cherubini's opera Anacreon, also in Paris. In 1812, soprano Fanny Tacchinardi Persiani was born. She created three title roles in Donizetti operas, Rosmonda d'Inglaterra, Pierre de Ptolemy, and Lucia de Lammermoor. In 1815, it was the first performance of Giacchino Rossini's Elisabetta, Regina d'Inglaterra. In 1910, 13-year-old composer Eric Wolfgang Korngold premiered his opera, The Snowman, in Vienna, with Alexander Zelinsky conducting. In 1916, the revised version of Richard Strauss's Ariadne of Naxos premiered at, in Vienna. That's the version we perform today. In 1921, Italian tenor Gianni Poggi was born. In 1931, English mezzo-soprano Anna Reynolds was born. Happy birthday to American tenor John Ayler, born in 1949. And happy birthday to Mexican tenor, one of my favorites, 
Francisco Ariza, born in A little bit of Francisco Ariza from the studio recording of Tales of Hoffman. Uh, with the Staatskapelle Dresden and the radio uh, choir, the Radio Rundfunk, I never say this thing, Rundfunk Choir, so the Leipzig Radio <laughs> Choir, I think is how you translate that. I went that led job. By, led by Jeffrey Tate in 1989. I love that recording. It has Jesse Norman in it, it has Anne Murray in it, hitting all of our two-minute drill people. So, <laughs> Variety called Falling for Figaro cute but corny. Uh, I saw the, the trailer for it. I haven't seen it. I, I don't know if either of those adjectives are appropriate. <laughs> I mean, if well, it's one of those things like when I live in Chicago. And so when NBC puts out another drama that's set in Chicago, I feel an obligation to watch it just so that <laughs> someone does. I kind of feel that way about this. Like I'm probably going to end up watching this film. I also feel like I'm not, you know, a shocker. An entitled white woman is the only person who can afford to go chase her operatic dreams. Go on, film at eleven. But one of the things I do like about this uh, is the main actress. I can't remember the central character's name, but she's played by an actress named Danielle McDonald. Who, if you saw the film Dumplin' that came out on Netflix maybe a year ago, she oh, was the right. she was the title yeah. character in that, and she was a delight. She was and she so sings Dolly Parton in that, right? Or so- she Dolly does. She does. She sings mm-hmm. Dolly. Um, but what I love about this is that. At least from the trailer and the things that, you know, have talked about what was in the trailer, Danielle McDonald is a, is a woman of less traditional size, and none of that is part of the dramatic action of this film. I don't believe it's addressed at all, and that in itself is a little bit revolutionary. So I will watch it. It is probably cute but corny. I mean, it's for a very specific audience, us. <laughs> so, it's for Ashley yeah. and Ashley only. No, it's I'm going to so, watch it. I'm no, going to, like, no, make some Ashley hot chocolate and... And bake some cookies and <laughs> put on my Snuggie and watch that movie. I mean, honestly, for Joanna Lumley alone, yeah. we should all watch it. That woman should get more work in film. I have a correction. I have to correct myself. Uh, Anne Murray does not appear on the studio recording of Tales of Hoffman. Not that way. Maybe she's another one, but she's not in that one. That recording has Jesse Norman as Antonia, which is brilliant. Uh, Anne Sophie von Otter as Niklaus. And Cheryl Studer, who we heard earlier as, Ant- um, not Antonia, who's the other one? Uh, Julieta. So it's all happening in Dusseldorf, which is sort of a, you know, <laughs> gritty town. But, I mean, who doesn't want to live near an opera house, right? Yeah. What that, does it that, have? That... It has, like, a hotel and uh, apartments and, and probably, like, an IHOP. Yeah, probably. I, I mean, don't think they have IHOP in Dusseldorf. <laughs> it's called E-Hope. E-Hope. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm actually really interested because it's, uh, you know, obviously it's sort of going to be replacing the older theater that's already there. Uh, hopefully they're not tearing down the old one. I, I assume they're not, but um, who can say? Um, but they needed a, a larger capacity house. 
Uh, and so they went to this architecture firm and like, can we have a larger capacity house and apparently like skyscrapers with apartments and uh, a roof garden and everything? <laughs> Honestly, I'm just proud of them for not designing another opera house that just kind of looks like a sailboat because that's been the trend for the past like 20 years in opera house design. It's all about the like mixed use, you know? Yeah. I really I really buy that. I really I really do enjoy buy that. that. Yeah. So, uh Persiani created the titles of three different Donizetti operas. I mean, that is what we call a hat trick in sports can we we're going to put a challenge out to you dear obs listeners um can you name another soprano we don't know the answer to this by the way so um can you name another artist maybe not even a soprano who created three roles exactly uh, three well three or more yeah let's who can beat who can beat fanny you know i think yeah. you get, i can th- probably get three or more maybe that you premiered that not not that no i'm me <laughs> <laughs> Every night in the shower is a different performance, yeah. and I compose the music. And well, the, if you're so confident, you just keep it as a soprano. I mean, if yeah. you wanted the easy version, you pick any voice type. But seriously, operaboxcore at gmail.com. Let us know if there's a trifecta, if there's a hat trick, which is possible to beat three sopranos. Jesse Norman and Ashley Hardgrave, you're, you're fighting Jesse's corner here. Listen, I will join that legal team because nobody hurts my Jesse. Um, I do wonder how this case is going to go. I mean, I know at least they're they're doing this in London, which means that, you know, UK laws are going to apply there. I would imagine right. if they had enough to file suit, they have enough to take it, you know, to trial or to banister or to whomever it's. I don't know much about the UK legal system, but um, I, I just don't. I, I'm a, I'm a little perplexed as to why now, um, posthumously, I'm not sure what kind of a what kind of a set of damages they would be looking for, unless they're going to like donate it to her foundation or something. But it's I mean, if this is in fact what happened, which I'm guessing is what happened, I mean that's that's really awful because in the last years of her life, she was in fact I mean she was confined mm-hmm. to a wheelchair, and yeah. if it was because of you know some sort of medical negligence on the part of these physicians, that's you know, that's, that's really sad. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hopeful and guardedly optimistic for her legal team. Hmm. So we'll conclude today, uh, with our own just peripheral tribute to Maya Eam. Um, none of us knew her, but, uh, we see all of our community really having a hard time with this one. There's such an outpouring, uh, of grief, uh, about Maya M. So, um, yeah, like I said, just based on all of our friends and what they've had to say about her, she must have been an incredible person. Uh, So we are so sorry for your loss. Yep. Hugging you in our hearts. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. How we wrap up each and every show. We're going to start with Oliver Camacho. Oliver, what do you got for us this week? So this is not going to help the publicity effort at all for Lyric Opera of Chicago, but I saw Elixir of Love, and it will close this Friday uh, with Eileen Perez as Adina and Charles Casanovo as Nemorino, two singers who you would not expect in those light lyric roles. But man, was it like balls to the wall singing. It was so <laughs> good. And they both took their moments and Una Furtiva Lagima like literally made me cry. It was so good. Uh, so was Adina Credimi, the first act finale. And Eileen Perez, I, 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 I've been saying this about her, that she's not like your 
ethereal, like floaty soprano, but she did so much floating in the, throughout the evening and basically sang Prendi, the aria at, at that closes the opera, like on the thread of a voice. Mm-hmm. And it was so, it was so impressive. I just cannot praise it enough. So congratulations to Lyric Opera for putting together that cast. Matt Cummings, not here on the show this week, so no <laughs> good call or bad call. Weston Williams on the show this week, but no good call or bad call. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave. In the spirit of no OBS episode going by without sort of uh, a James Dara reference, uh, <laughs> the James Dara effect has now bled over into my personal and social media life <laughs> because he liked a post that was posted about me on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> I cannot get away from this man. Uh, I welcome him. He's a delight. And thank you for all you're doing for the art form. Uh, But yeah, and the reason that I got liked by James Dara in an Instagram post is because I was at the Theater Squared premiere of the stage play of Designing Women. Yes, after the very popular television show from the 80s and 90s. Uh, So it's it's a it's basically a taking of that setting of those four sassy Atlanta women and putting them in 2020. How would they respond now? What would they do with the election of 2020 in their Atlanta design firm? So not operatic, but definitely got liked by someone who's tied to opera. So it all works out. <laughs> if you are interested in seeing this production of Designing Women, you can look up Theater Squared. Uh, that's theater with an R-E and then the word squared written out. And there are streaming performances that you can watch from anywhere beginning October 15th. Keep those chicks coming, Jimmy! (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. We're a very American show. Is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, you're going to search Opera Box Score. Twitter, Instagram, at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen that bench of listeners liking, sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. And you can remember, subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher, especially if you watch on TDO. You want to get the full cut on the podcast. You can even just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts, like, and subscribe. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-host, Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you drink cold beers in a warm stadium parking lot. We're back with an all-new show next week. We go inside the huddle with stage director Katura Stakan. She's also the host of the podcast Words First, Talking Text in Opera. Plus, you're going to get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more Arkansas football losses. How very dare you. Join us.